0: You are listening to the Landmark Sermon Series, a sermon podcast nearly 40 years in the making. You'll hear the voices of our church's founding pastors, Dr. James Reeves and Alan McBrayer, as well as others who helped pave the way for City on a Hill beginning all the way back in the early 1980s. Our hope is that these sermons bless you and challenge you in the same way they have blessed and challenged so many others in the past. For more information about our church, visit www.cityonahilldfw.com. evening and turn to James, the second chapter, the second chapter of the book of James. We've been studying on Sunday evenings together, verse by verse, through the book of James. I started this about the very beginning of the summer, and so many things have happened that we're just now in the second chapter. Last week, or was it last week or week before last? I don't even remember. We've had, had so many people that have visited and have preached uh, in my stead and uh, at preached for me and uh, we've preached. But the last time we were together, I dealt with the first Uh, eight or ten verses of of James' second chapter. And tonight we're just going to pick up where we left off, which is always our pattern, and we're going to look at at God's Word verse by verse. We're going to talk about tonight, we're going to think about the mercies of God. And that's really and truly what James deals with in these verses, James chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. So if you've got God's Word, open it up, and let's read together. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, according to the Scripture, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of it all. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not commit murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act, as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty for judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy but mercy triumphs over judgment james is so practical under the inspiration of the spirit of god as he wrote this letter to these these christians he always brings it home and he always brings it down where the rubber meets the road if you will and makes it practical and applies it to us from the very beginning of the first chapter to the very end of the book the book of James is, is filled with practical things for living. You now, one problem it seems like that we have as people, we have a difficult time getting people saved because we have to, first of all, get them lost. Now, what I mean by that, people have a hard time being saved and trusting Jesus as Savior because they're not, first of all, many times, willing to recognize that we stand before a holy and a righteous God as sinners. There's something within man that does not want to admit sin. There's something within man that, did, that kind of wants to make excuses before God and not is not willing to come clean of it all and stand before a holy and righteous God and admit that he is a sinner before God. And you can, you can never receive the mercies of God until, you first of all, you're willing to come to the place of acknowledging the fact that you need mercy from God. Our society, as a matter of fact, is doing everything it possibly can to take sin out of our vocabulary. That's an old-fashioned word uh, in our society, and, and we've written it out. As a matter of fact, that idea inspired Dr. Carl Menninger, who is, by the way, a very committed Christian, to write a book many years ago, about 10 years ago, that has become a classic now, and he entitled his book, Whatever Became of Sin. Whatever Became of Sin, because through his years as a psychiatric counselor, he had heard people call things that were nothing but sin, called him by all kinds of names. We call it social maladjustment. <laughs> instead of sin. or We call it psychiatric uh, um, uh, whatever. (laughs) I can't even think. But we call it anything but sin. But we don't want to label sin as what God's Word says. And so we just try to kind of take it out of our vocabulary and we've kind of pushed it out of our society. We're not willing oftentimes to admit before our holy and righteous God that we are in fact sinners. And until we're willing to do that, until an individual is willing to do that, there is no way that they can receive the mercy of God. I heard an, an ancient parable that maybe you've heard. I maybe even told it to you before. I'll tell it to you good, again because it's good. And it is an ancient parable of a king who visited one of the prison ships. And in ancient days when someone was thrown and cast into prison, sometimes they would take them out and they would put them into one of the ships. And they would become the power of uh, uh, for that ship to be to be moved in and out of port and up and down the rivers and there would be 40 or 50 men that would be manning the oars deep down in the belly of that ship men who were prisoners and the parable goes that the king went onto the ship one time and went down into the belly of the ship where all of the prisoners were there rowing with the sweat of their brows and the king walked up and down the row there and he began to talk with the men and he asked one man sir why are you here what crime have you committed and the man said oh king i'm not guilty i didn't commit any crime as a matter of fact i was framed king i was set up they lied they they someone else uh committed the crime and then they they lied about me and brought up false witnesses before me and king i committed no crime i don't belong here i'm an innocent mayor so the king went on down the road a little further and talked to another man he just said sir what crime have you committed why are you here? And he said, oh, King, I've committed no crime. I'm, I'm completely innocent. I just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. I was just walking down the street when the crime was committed. And the, the ones who committed the crime left very quickly. And when, when the authorities came, I just happened to be there. And they arrested me, King. I'm innocent, totally and completely innocent. I committed no crime. I don't belong here. And the king went on down the row, and as he talked with each one of the man, men, every one of them had excuses for why they were there rowing in that prison slave ship until finally the king came to a man down at the end and he said, sir, why are you here? And the man said, oh king, I'm here because I've committed a crime. I'm here, king, because I've sinned against God. I've sinned against my country. And yes, I've sinned against my king. And I was arrested and I was convicted And king. I am here because I have committed a crime and I'm getting what I deserve. And the king immediately responded to the man, you scoundrel. You rogue. You lowlife! You're no good for nothing. What are you doing here with all of these honest men? Guards, release him and let him go. You see, the problem that most of us have when we initially are encountered with the gospel and when we are initially uh, uh, encountered by the Spirit of God is that there is something that is deep within us that refuses to admit that we are, in fact, sinners standing before a holy and a righteous God. You see, folks, Jesus didn't die for excuses. Jesus died for sinners. Jesus died for those of us who are willing to admit that we stand in need of a Savior. And so James comes to this point and he begins to write about the mercies of God. What he has said before and what he is going to say immediately following these these verses all tie into the context. But at this point, James begins to contemplate the mercies of God. I want you to notice a few things as we study these these passages together about the mercy of God. First of all, in verse 8, james mentions the sovereignty of the scriptures now that's going to fit in very very clearly into the outline and into what the passage is all about he mentions the sovereignty of the scriptures notice what he calls god's law in verse 8. he says if however you are fulfilling the royal law if you are fulfilling the royal law the law of god now why does james call god's law the royal law from the floor (laughs) Don't do that very often. Why does he call it the royal law? I mentioned this last week. Come on. Let's wake up. Because what? Because of the king of the law? It's the king of the laws. Absolutely. It's the king of the laws. But why does he call it the royal law? Because it is given by the king. Isn't that right? God's law is given by a king. Therefore, this law becomes a royal law. It is a sovereign law, if you will, because it is given by a sovereign king. Now, quite frankly, that's why when I preach, I don't try to preach topically. I don't try to preach just blasting through the scripture or read a passage of scripture and then depart and and say whatever I feel that ought to be said that particular day just to beat you over the head. But I attempt as as I study and as I preach the word of God to stay very closely to the scripture because you see the scripture is sovereign. It is given by a sovereign God. It is given by a king. It is the word of God. And James said, mentions, now if you are fulfilling this royal law, and then he mentions one of these royal laws. He mentions the probably of your neighbor as yourself. Then he says, then you are doing very good. You are doing well. As you read the scripture beginning with the Old Testament and going through the, through the New Testament, you'll, re, you'll find a phrase that's repeated over and over and over in the Scriptures. This formula appears, The Word of the Lord came, or God spoke, or God said, or the Word of God was this or that. Throughout the Scriptures, from the very beginning of, to the end, God has been speaking, and it has been His Word. It has been the Word of a sovereign king. Now, what we have in the Scripture is the recorded word of God, which is that word of that sovereign king. And so what God has said is, in fact, the word of God. And the scripture, folks, is sovereign because the royal law was given by a sovereign king. Now, let's move on very quickly. I just wanted to point that out because it's going to be important in this next point. Not only the sovereignty of the scripture, but notice what James says about the sinfulness of man. The sinfulness of man, verses 9 through 11. He says if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. Now if you do not commit adultery but you do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Now notice... He mentions the sovereignty of the scripture, the royal law of God. And then in these next verses, when he begins to deal with the sinfulness of man, he, he mentions that the word of God is so sovereign, that God's law is so sovereign, that if you or I or any of God's creatures transgress that law at only one point, only one point, he says, we become accountable for every single word of it. That's how sovereign God's law is. That it only takes the transgression of one of God's law. It only takes the transgression of God's law at one point for us to become accountable to all of it. Now I want you to notice the context in which he says this. Because just before this that we dealt with last week, James has been dealing with prejudice. He's been dealing with this thing of partiality. And he says if we show any partiality to anyone, if we show any prejudice, then we have sinned. And you remember we talked about... Uh, uh, snooty ushers and stuck-up churches last week and that's what James was talking about. And He talked about if a rich man walks into your place and he's got a gem at every joint and a, and a nugget on every knuckle and you show him some kind of partiality and you give him the best seat in the house and then uh, a very poor man with dirty clothes obviously just coming off of the workplace and didn't even have time to clean up before he came to the place of worship walks into your, your, your place of worship and you tell him to hold up the wall in the back. Then you, James says, have become Uh, guilty of showing partiality and you have sinned james says now he ties all of this together and he begins to talk about the royal law of god he said that prejudice even prejudice something that we would think as minute as that it's certainly not murder it's certainly not adultery we normally wouldn't in our society put it in the same category as murder or adultery but then james right after that says but God's word is so sovereign, God's law is so sovereign, that if you or I transgress at even one minor point such as that, then we have become guilty of every single word of the word of God. Now, why is James saying that? Why do you think he deals with that? Because he's so practical. Because he's so practical. Because I can see as James is writing this thing about prejudice to these Christians here or Uh, knowing the spirit of God knowing that you and I were going to read this and going to study this someday in the 20th century that the spirit of God looked ahead and and, and knew what some of us were going to say the spirit of God looked ahead and knew that some of us were going to say well so what I'm a little prejudiced you You know. know You know, I'm, so what? I'm a little partial. I mean, so what? I show a little partiality because of the color of someone's skin or because of the level of their social standing or whether they're a member of the country club or not. You know, I mean, that's just, that, you know, that's part of society. And so what if I show a little bit of prejudice because of that? At least I haven't committed murder. You know, I mean, let's get practical. I mean, at least I haven't committed adultery. And so the Spirit of God through James says, Listen, if you transgress the law, whether it's prejudice, whether it's adultery, whether it's murder, whether it's lying, if you've transgressed at any point, you've become accountable and guilty for it all. And that brings it home, doesn't it? That means if we have shown partiality, we've become murderers before God. We are guilty for murder. We are guilty for adultery. We are guilty for the entire law because if we've transgressed at one point, then we stand before God on the same level and the same ground as a murderer, as an adulterer, as a, a liar, as a thief, as anything that you can possibly think of if we have transgressed at one point, James says, then we have become accountable for the entire thing. We stand accountable to God. Think of it this way. If a man is hanging over a cliff by a chain that has 10 links. How many links have to break before he plunges to his death? Only one. Only one. Only one link has to break in order for that man to go to his death. James says, no matter how much of God's word there is, all it takes is one link to be broken, one law to be broken, one transgression against the, the sovereign law of God, and you become guilty of it all. Now, most folks' problem is in our conception of sin, really. It's our conception of sin. And many things that that we try to push aside, and we don't really want to call them what they really are, like Carl Menninger says. We want to call them by another name, but we don't really want to call them sin. Many of those things we just push aside. And so I think it might be important for us tonight to take just a moment and go back to God's Word and broaden our definition of sin for just a moment. Let's take a look at God's Word and see what God's Word calls sin in order for us to come to this thing of realizing who we are and therefore needing the mercy of God. Maybe we need to just broaden this definition. Let me give you three things, and there are many more, but I think maybe these three will kind of cover the the spectrum for us a little bit tonight. Three things that God's Word says are sin. Write these down. These are important to remember. Three things that God's Word says are sin. First of all, and James mentions it here, but we'll reiterate it for uh, learning purposes, sin is transgression of the law of God. Now, that's easy enough. We've already got that. James has already said it. But John said it also. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, where he said, Sin is lawlessness. Or another translation of that is, Sin is transgression against law, against the law of God. And so, sin is first of all, When you do anything that breaks the law of God or that transgresses against the law of God, actually, you don't break God's law, okay? You don't break God's law. It breaks you. Uh, It's like the old boy, you know, hanging over or that gets up in a uh, uh, 10-foot, 10-story building. 10-foot building. Boy, he's not going to do a whole lot, is he? Gets up into a 10-story building, and he says, I'm going to jump out of this building, and I'm going to break the law of gravity. Does he break the law of gravity? No, (laughs) he breaks his neck. The law of gravity breaks him. You actually don't break the law of God. You simply demonstrate it, and you simply uh, transgress against it, but you can't break the law of gravity. So James says that, that sin, first of all, is transgression against the law. Now, we've already dealt with that. We don't need to go on that. God says, Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. That's sin, okay? We can handle that. That's pretty clear. But let's broaden the definition a little bit. Not only is transgression against the law sin, but God's Word says that failure to do what we know we ought to do is also sin. To know to do good and not to do it, the Scripture says, is sin. And James is the one that says it, as a matter of fact. Chapter 4, verse 17. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Therefore, To the one who knows the right thing to do, yet does not do it, he says to him, it is sin. Now that kind of broadens the definition for us a little bit. I mean, who of us here tonight could in all honesty say, I've done everything I should. I mean, there's not anything that I felt that I should do that I have not done. I have forgiven every time that I needed to forgive. I held nothing against anyone. There's not a time in my life that I have Withheld my forgiveness, even though I knew that I ought to to forgive. There's not been one time in my life that I have not served with the gifts and the talents and the abilities that God has given me through the New Testament Church. Every single time that I have felt the Spirit of God telling me to do them, known that it was right to do, and I've done it. Everything that I have in all of my life that I could possibly think of that I knew that I ought to do, I went ahead and did it. Is there anybody that could say that? One hand. All right. No hands. No hands. There never will be. Because there's not one of us that can honestly say that we've done everything that we ought to do, yet God's Word says that is sin. To know to do right and not do it is sin. Sin of omission, if you want to use that terminology. And so when that is added to our definition of sin as being transgression against the law, volitionally doing something against God's law, when that is added, when you say, but sin also is to know something that's good to do, not doing something bad, but just not doing something that we know we ought to do, that broadens the definition, but we need to go further because God's Word does. Not only is sin transgressioning as the law and do, not doing what we know we ought to do, but sin is also in, in the Scripture, whatever we do that is not done in faith is also sin. Whatever we do that is not done in total confidence and in faith is also sin. Look in Romans chapter 14, verse 23. I'll give you a moment to flip over. Not literally flip over, but turn over there in your Bibles. You folks are slow tonight. It's so hot in here, I can understand why. Are you hot? I am too. Thank you for that, Gardley. You know, not only really sing good you know when to agree with a preacher. <laughs> The third part of our definition of sin is that whatever is not of faith, the Scripture says, is sin. Romans chapter 14, verse 23. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. Whatever is not from faith is sin. Now what does that mean? He who eats and doubts, to him it is sin, for whatever is not of faith is of sin. That means that if I do anything in my life, whether it be good, bad, or indifferent, if I do anything in my life, that I do not have the full and complete confidence that it is the will of God for me, that it is right in the eye of God. If I do it without the full confidence that it is God's will, then James or then Paul says it is sin, because anything that is not of faith is sin. Now, to understand this, you need to get the context in which Paul says this, verse 23 in chapter 14. The context in chapter 14 of Romans is the Jewish eating restrictions. And if you study the Old Testament, you understand that that the Jews had many restrictions of things that they couldn't eat and things that they could eat, things that were declared clean and things that were declared unclean. He's talking about foods here. Well, Paul says that in Christ all things are clean. I mean, there's no food that is unclean or clean. Uh, Jesus wiped all of that out. So in Jesus, there really is no clean or unclean food. But then in verse 15, he goes beyond that. He admits that there is no such thing as unclean food. In other words, something that is not clean For us to eat as the jews had their restrictions but in then in verse 15 he goes a little bit further than whether it is clean or whether it's unclean and he deals with what happens if you go ahead and eat it verse 15 he says for if because of food your brother is hurt you are no longer walking according to love do not destroy with your food him for whom christ died now are you sufficiently confused jeffrey He's sufficiently confused. Well, let's see if we can explain it a little bit. The whole context is the purification laws of unclean and clean food. And under the Old Testament, there were those foods that God's people could eat, those foods that God's people could not eat. But in the new dispensation in Christ, Paul says, no longer do those apply. No longer are there clean and unclean foods. But he's writing to many Jewish Christians He's writing to many who were born and raised Jews and now have trusted Christ. And they did not just immediately wipe out all of that remembrance, all of that training, all of that Jewish background and history that they had. And so some of those Christians who had come to a little within the body of Christ, they see food that before was declared unclean, and they know that in Jesus there is no such thing as unclean food. And so they eat. But a weaker brother over here who is also a Jew that has that same background, he's not yet completely been able to come to the level of spiritual maturity to let go of all of those Jewish restrictions. And he sees that stronger brother who is eating that food that has been declared unclean. And something happens. It causes his brother to stumble. Paul says, you have sinned because for the sake of food, for the sake of food, you have caused your brother in Christ for whom Jesus died, you've caused him to stumble. Whatever is not of faith is sin. Whatever cannot be done in full confidence of the will of God for that time, for that individual, is sin. And then he gets even more personal. <laughs> We'd like it if he just left it there. But he gets even more personal in verse 23. I believe it is. Verse 23. But he says, He who doubts is condemned if he eats. For whatever is not of faith is sinned. He brings it even further home, and he says, and suppose you, the one who is doing the eating of this so-called clean or unclean food, in your mind, there's some question. In your mind, there's still a, a, a minute grain of doubt of whether this is really right or whether it is not, and you go ahead and do it anyway, Paul says, it is sin, Whatever is not a faith, whatever cannot be done in total and complete confidence of it being in the very center of the plan and the purpose of God is not a faith. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. And whatever is not a faith, the scripture says, is sin. Now that broadens the definition for us again a little wider, doesn't it, about sin. If we could say, well, I'm not a murderer, I'm not an adulterer, I'm not even prejudiced, even a little bit. I must not be a sinner, then the definition broadens and takes in what we know to be good and don't do, that's sin. What we do in our life that we don't have the full confidence that it is the will of God, then that becomes sin. That means, folks, in practical application, and we've got to bring it down to where we live, that any habit, any action, anything that is a part of your life that you cannot participate in that with the total and full confidence that it is God's plan and God's purpose for you, it is sin. Whether it would be sin for someone else, it becomes sin for you because you're not doing it in faith. You're not doing it in that complete confidence that it is God's will for your life. So whether I cause my brother to stumble by something that is neither right nor wrong in and of itself, if I understand that it causes my brother to stumble and I hold on to my right tenaciously and say, but it's my right, and it causes him to sin, I've sinned against him and against God. If there's a smidgen of doubt in my mind, If it is right or it is wrong for one of God's people to do this or do that, and I do it anyway, Paul says, it is sin. I heard of a husband and wife who were getting ready to go out for the evening, and the husband yelled at the wife from the bedroom and she was in the bathroom. And he said, honey, is this shirt clean enough for me to wear? And immediately, without even hesitating, she said, no, wear another one. And after a while, he started thinking about that. And he thought, how in the world did she know that shirt wasn't clean enough to wear? She didn't even see it. And so he said, honey, how did you know that that shirt wasn't, wasn't clean enough to wear? You didn't even know what shirt I had. You didn't have no idea. And she said, if you had to ask, it wasn't clean enough. If there's doubt, it's dirty. If there's doubt, it's dirty. That's a good rule for whether it's right or whether it's wrong for the child of God, if there's doubt, it's dirty because if you can't do it in faith, then don't do it because Paul says that whatever is not of faith is sin. So with that definition, the transgression of a law, not doing something that we know we ought to do, doing something that is neither in itself right or wrong, but not able to do it in faith and full confidence, when you broaden the definition like that, then every single one of us stands before a holy and righteous God, guilty. Guilty. There's not one of us that is not, and we need the mercy of God. Now let's move on. The sovereignty of the scripture, the sinfulness of man, every one of us, that takes us all in. Now we stand all on the same common ground. Now notice thirdly, the severity of the sentence. Verses 12 through 13. I guess I better get out of Romans and get back to James. Verses 12 through 13. James says, As those who are to be judged by the law of liberty, for judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, a lot of folks only want to hear about the goodness of God. Only want to hear about the goodness of God. And they have this idea that God is such a good God. He's such a kind God. He's such a good God that there's no way that he's going to condemn me if I just try. You know, if I just make an effort, God is has got to be such a good God that if I just make an effort, there's no way that he's going to condemn me. It's almost as if God grades on a, grades on a curve, you know? you know. In school, you were graded on a curve sometimes in college they kind of view God as grading on a curve, and if you could just reach a level of proficiency there in the curve somewhere, just reach that minimum requirement of the passing grade of the 70, then when you stand before Jesus, he's going to say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. The Scripture does say that God is good, but the Scripture also says that God is just. He is not only all good, but he is also all just. As a matter of fact, Paul says in Romans chapter 11, verse 22, Behold the kindness and the justice of God. They go together. They are not mutually exclusive. They go together. Behold the kindness and the justice of God. So God is good. God is kind. But he is also just and he is righteous. Therefore, he must punish sin. And with our definition of sin, we've already come to the conclusion that every single one of us is there. Every single one of us is there. And so there's goodness of God on this side, but there is also the justice of God on this side. And because He is a just and a righteous God, then He must punish sin, whether it's transgression of the law, whether it is not doing what we knew we ought to have done, or whether it is doing something that is not out of complete and total faith. It all stands on the same level with God. It is sin. And because He is just, then He must punish sin. And the punishment must match the crime. And so James says, to those who show no mercy, there will be judgment without mercy. I feel like an old-time Baptist preacher tonight. <laughs> you know, every time, every, every now and then you just come to a passage in the Scripture that just requires that. Just, just to cut loose and just preach like an old-time Baptist preacher. You know, all that preaching wasn't bad. Some of it was. Some of it was bad. Some of it was terrible. But not all of it's bad. But really, in Trinity, folks, I I get this feeling. You're sitting there like a calf looking at a new gate. You're saying, what's wrong? Is James mad at us tonight? (laughs) No. We just come to the passage of scriptures that just says this, and we have to deal with it. We have to understand it. God is good, but he is also just. And every single one of us stands on the same ground. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. There are no different levels in God's eyes. And because he is just, then he must punish sin. The punishment must match the crime. Therefore, James says, for those who show no mercy, then there will be judgment with no mercy. Now think about that. Don't let that just roll off your back like water off a duck's back. Judgment with no mercy. How awesome. How awesome. Now, let me explain something that always needs to be explained when you come to this point because somebody always will go away with the wrong intention the wrong idea when james says that there to those who show no mercy there will be judgment with no mercy james is not saying then the flip side of that is then if i just show mercy if i'm just a merciful person in my life then when i stand before god then i'm going to receive mercy that would be a works kind of salvation, to use a Baptistic term, which is a good biblical term. That would be a works kind of salvation that says I can earn my salvation some way, and that, would be not, that wouldn't be salvation by faith through grace, as the Scripture teaches. And so that's not what James means. He doesn't mean that if I just go through my life and just ignore Jesus just go through my life and just kind of show mercy on people uh, you know dogs and 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 you know and, and little people as i come in kind of in contact with them in my daily life if, if i'm just a merciful person then someday when i stand before god he's gonna say hey you're a pretty good guy come on in that's not what james is teaching once again you have to come back to the context so let me give you a, uh, just a plug here as you study god's word it's always wise to study the context always look at the misused and abused through the centuries because they ignored the context in which James said it. Many, many people have based their theology of works upon this very verse right here. Just be a merciful person, a good guy, and you'll get into heaven. But see, that ignores the context in which James states it, and when you study the context, you understand that that's not what James means at all. He's not even beginning to say something like that. Let me give you a a picture or a look at the context. In the very following verses, and as a matter of fact, verse 14, James begins to deal with this. He begins to deal with the relationship between faith and works. It's a major theme in the book of James because he's so practical. He deals with the relationship of faith and works beginning in verse 14, right after this statement that those who show no mercy There will be judgment without mercy. He's so practical, he's got to once again bring it right back down and apply it to daily life. So that's what he says. Paul says we're saved by faith through grace. So James answers the question, okay, if that's true, if we're saved by faith through grace, then what is saving faith? What is the kind of faith that really and truly saves someone? And his conclusion is this, faith that does not issue itself in works, is not saving faith. Faith that does not result in a new life, a changed lifestyle. Faith that doesn't result in some difference in the way that I live my life. James is not faith at all. It's empty. Look at verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? He comes to the conclusion, verse 17. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. James says that someone who says, I have faith, but his life does not reflect the life of Jesus, he comes to the conclusion, that's not faith. That's not saving faith. It has no application whatsoever for salvation. Now, with that understanding of the context, come back to what he says in verse 13 and apply it to what he says about mercy. To those who show no mercy, there will be judgment without mercy. In other words, if I have experienced the mercy of God, then it is going to exemplify itself in my life. I can't know the mercy of God on my life and not turn around and, and give that mercy to other people and exemplify that through my lifestyle. So James says to one who shows no mercy, he is going to receive judgment without mercy because he rejected the mercy of God. He's talking about faith that issues itself in a new life, the born again experience. He's talking about faith that's not just up in the cloud somewhere, but that finds its fulfillment in daily life, that comes down where the shoe leather meets the road and lives it out in daily life. And he says, for those who show no mercy, by their very lives show that they've not experienced the mercy of God. Therefore, when they stand before the Father, there will be judgment without mercy because they rejected the mercy of God. So far, looks kind of bleak, doesn't it? I mean, we we look at this, the sovereignty of the scripture, we're held accountable for all of God's law if we transgress it even at one minor point, or if we even don't do something that we know we should do, or if we do something that's good, but we don't do it in full faith and confidence, it becomes sin. And we look at that, it becomes a very bleak picture. We look at the sinfulness of man, that we all stand before God, Uh, accountable for sin and then we notice the severity of the sentence the sentence is judgment without mercy and if God had just left us there we'd have all just gone home and gotten depressed but I'm glad that he didn't in verse 13 notice the very last words that James says he says but mercy triumphs over judgment mercy triumphs over judgment When we see that we all stand before God as sinners and that there is no mercy to those who have shown no mercy, how good it is to hear James say, but mercy triumphs over judgment. The mercies of God. You know, grace and mercy are real close together. They're real close together. You know what grace is? Grace is me getting what I don't deserve. Grace is getting what I don't deserve, salvation, forgiveness. I don't deserve it. I can't earn it. So grace is me getting what I don't deserve. But do you know what mercy is? (laughs) It's not getting what I do deserve, judgment. And grace and mercy go hand in hand. And James says that mercy triumphs over judgment. The scripture says that all who reject the Lord Jesus ultimately will stand before the judgment seat of God. For a trial, there's going to be a trial that's going to take place. And every trial has three parts. Let me give you the three parts of the trial. For those who have shown no mercy, who knew, knew not Jesus as Savior. Three parts that this trial will have. First of all, there is the giving of the evidence. The evidence is very clear. This man or woman who has rejected Jesus will stand before God with transgression of the law, with not doing things that should have been done, with doing things without faith. All of it some of it somewhere they fall into one of those categories as a transgressor and the evidence is presented before the judgment seat of God here is this one he stands before you, father as a sinner incontrovertible evidence of sin the next part of every trial is the defense and so this one who has said no to Jesus comes before God and says but but God I did this and I did this and I did this and And I I tried to live a good life. I tried not to cheat in my business. I I tried to treat people fair. I I tried to be, you know, a good person in life. And besides all of that, I didn't know that I needed to trust Jesus as Savior. Uh, I only rejected Christ because there were hypocrites in the church. I mean, I looked in the church and, and they weren't perfect and I didn't want to be a part of that. And so I said, well, I don't want anything to do with your God. I mean, can you blame me for that, God? Or I didn't, I didn't trust Jesus because I didn't know what church to join. I mean, you got Methodists, you got Baptists, you got Presbyterians. God's answer will come back I didn't ask you to accept the church, I asked you to accept Jesus, my son, and become a part of the church. And all of the excuses of man in his defense, even in the speaking of that defense, will begin to fall apart in the face of a holy and righteous God. And even as that one stands before God and begins to give those excuses, he'll understand and he'll see that they hold no water. And finally, the third part of every trial is the verdict. Guilty. 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 Judgment without mercy. Judgment without mercy. Then another time, there's going to be another Somewhat trial. Not of the same nature as this one. When those who have trusted Jesus stand before that same holy and righteous God. Not a judgment for destiny. A judgment for reward. As God's people stand before him and the evidence again is presented. Incontrovertible evidence. Guilty. Guilty. Incontrovertible. Sinner. Sinner just like that one before the judgment seat of Christ. And then the defense comes, and the defense is given, and that one stands before God, and he says, what defense do you have? And he says, I have no defense, no defense, except the Lord Jesus Christ. On December the 31st, 1971, in faith. I turned from my sin. I repented of my lifestyle and I turned toward Jesus in faith and I trusted him as my Lord and my master. And that father is guilty but having trusted Jesus as Savior. And the verdict? Mercy, mercy, mercy. As Jesus turns to the father and the father says, Son, is it so? And Jesus, our advocate, the scripture says he's our advocate, our lawyer, stands before the judgment seat of God and pleads our case and says, Father, he's mine. He's mine. And the verdict comes, mercy, mercy, mercy. You see, because mercy triumphs over judgment. Thank you, Lord, for the mercies of God. Every one of us, every one of us stands here tonight who knows Jesus as Savior, having received grace, receiving what we don't deserve, abundant life, eternity. Every one of us who knows Jesus as Lord and Master stands here tonight having received mercy, and mercy is not getting what I deserve. Why? Because Jesus got it for me. And the only defense I have before a holy and righteous God is his mercy as I find it in Jesus. Let's pray together.